0: Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world.
1: That's a senior associate in Global Council's Washington, D.C. office. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Matt Bennett, Executive Vice President for Public Affairs at Third Way, which is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. And Matt, great to have you um, join a a GC event. I know you've been uh, a great participant in, in several previous ones, so it's good to have you on again today. Thanks for having me back. So just a little um, housekeeping ahead of the this call on the outlook for President Biden's 2022 agenda. If folks have questions, please feel free to, to drop them in the chat function and we'll be sure to get to those. So just to scene set a bit, um, We're a little over a year into the Biden presidency. His approval rating, according to 538, hovers just under 42 percent. Other polls have it a little bit lower for for registered voters. In January, the consumer price index rose 0.6 percent, undermining predictions that inflation will fade. And in fact, consumer prices rose over seven and a half percent over the past year, the highest since the, the 1980s. Adding into this, the crisis in Ukraine, rising tensions with China, a very public inter-party failure with the Build Back Better, not to mention the fact that generally incumbents lose over 20 seats in the House and around four in the Senate in their um, in their midterms, it looks like Biden is in for a tough ride, at least for the next few months ahead of the, the 2022 election. So Matt, you know, in view of all that's happened um, in the first year of the Biden administration, you know, what do you think his priorities are for this next year ahead of the elections?
0: Well, uh, first... That's all true and pretty gloomy for people like me and Democrats, but, but I also want to just put in a little bit of a historical context. Um, presidential approval ratings drop by 20% the minute you drive your presidency off the lot, like a car. Um, and this always happens. Presidents always uh, have a honeymoon, and then they have a huge dip. And often it's because of factors very similar to some of the ones you just articulated, So I served in the Clinton White House and he saw this kind of drop um, because in the first term for Democrats, their reach often exceeds their grasp. Clinton tried to pass a big healthcare reform bill in his first year and failed, um, despite the fact that his party had a much bigger margin in both House and Senate than Biden does. And Obama failed on climate change legislation and some other things. So this is pretty common, but unfortunately what is also common is a shellacking in the first midterm election for this new president. That's true for both parties. Um, I don't know that 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 is an inevitable outcome this time, because I think there is a bunch of political factors that we can talk about later uh, that, that might affect that. But I think in terms of what his agenda ought to be, he needs to, and I believe he's beginning to pivot away from the first year, which where the focus was on legislating in a huge way. I mean, he also got a bipartisan infrastructure bill done. He got the rescue plan done. Together, those are larger in real dollar terms than the New Deal. I mean, that's a that's a lot. Um, and he didn't get Build Back Better done yet, but that's not quite dead. I think some other iteration of that will come up. So I think what he needs to do this year is uh, focus on explaining to the public what he's done and why it'll be good for them. Uh, that means much more public facing role, much less negotiating with Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema constantly. Uh, and I think he needs to make sure that, that the public knows that he's really trying to get his arms around inflation, which is the thing that is uh, having the biggest downward pressure on his approval ratings.
1: Yeah. And I mean, in terms of what President Biden can do to address inflation, it seems like there are a relatively limited toolkit for him. So, you know, how do you think he should address the inflation part of this head on? And then how does that feed into the potentially not dead aspect of the Build Back Better plan?
0: Yeah, I mean, to your point, presidents uh, get more credit than they deserve when things are great and more blame than they deserve when they're not. And this is a perfect example. This inflation is being driven by a lot of factors that are outside of his control. Um, well, one thing he can do is put people who are responsible on the Federal Reserve, and I think he's done his part, but yesterday, uh, Republicans refused to come to the Senate Banking Committee and, and denied a quorum to allow them to move forward with those nominees, and that means Chairman Powell and a, a host of other nominees are not on the Federal Reserve. So I think he can go out and say, Republicans are being ridiculous in the face of you know historic inflation. We don't have people sitting on the Federal Reserve in, in confirmed Positions uh, to grapple with that. Uh, he can also point out that he's doing some things by executive action that are going to help uns- unsnaggle the problems in the supply chain. Then, uh, and he's talked about that quite a bit. And uh, then he can help on the kind of other side by ensuring that the uh, job creation continues to pace and that that wages continue to go up to try to keep pace with inflation. Uh, but there are a limited set of tools that he has to, to manage all of this problem. I think much of what he has to do is political and make sure that people understand that he understands that what they're seeing in the economy is very difficult, despite the fact that besides inflation, every other economic indicator is unbelievably good. I mean, he just, uh, you know, presided over one of the greatest economic recovery years in American history in terms of um, drop in unemployment, rise in jobs, uh, stock market growth, and a a drop in consumer debt, a whole host of other factors that are really, really good. um, But um, inflation is a gigantic mitigating factor, and he needs to make sure people know that he knows that.
1: Absolutely. And it seems like from the um, perspective of Congress, the, tr- the um, perception of inflation being driven by government spending, right or wrong, has shaped the Democratic legislative agenda, specifically on the on the Build Back Better. So, maybe let's just drill down into you know how you see that piece of legislation or whatever its successor is, um, you know, moving forward, given that Senator Manchin has said that he wants to use this opportunity mainly for tax reform. And Senator Sinema um, has drawn a red line basically against any major changes to the US, uh, U.S. tax regime. Again, I mean, I feel like everyone always talks about these two two people in Washington, D.C., and there are certain other levers of power that the Biden administration can exert, but uh, you can't ignore the fact that they're quite influential in this debate.
0: No, you can't. And and there's been a lot of pressure on Biden to simply get Manchin to do what he wants, but When I worked in the White House, there was no torture chamber in the basement. Uh, There was no, uh, you know, there's no way to push a senator if he or she was unwilling to go there. And that that is um, still the case. In fact, presidents today have much more, much uh, less leverage over senators than they used to. They used to be able to withhold, you know, pork barrel projects in their districts uh, or threaten them with withholding of financial help in their campaigns, none of that applies anymore because the rules and the methods of those things have all changed. So there's really not that much that Biden can do other than to try to work and reason with, with both of those senators. And you know, we'll see if he succeeds. And to your point, they don't agree on what ought to be changed in Build Back Better to make it uh, across the finish line. I think that there is a you know reasonable chance that uh, some big portion of BBB will make it. I don't know when, uh, but it will probably have to be by the middle of the spring if it's going to happen at all. Um, in terms of Manchin's concerns about inflation, I think um, they're just wrong. It, it, they're, you can make a pretty good argument, as Larry Summers and others did, that the American Rescue Plan passed in the spring was too large, um, and that drove inflation. That is uh, certainly possibility. Not all economists agree, but it's possible. But Nobody thinks that Build Back Better would drive inflation. It's long term spending. It's on big things like uh, climate change and others. Uh, it's just not going to be a, a driver of near term inflation. Um, and so I think that that's a red herring. But I do think he's concerned about other things, deficits, uh, et cetera, that um, it's not clear why he has become concerned about deficits now. Uh, when he wasn't that concerned about them, when the Bush tax cuts were moving, but uh, we should have to pick that up with him.
1: Well, we'll see how far we get with that. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned that Biden is, you know, should be pivoting kind of away from legislation touting his, um, you know, already made achievements in the ARP and the bipartisan infrastructure package, but there are a few Um, you know, interesting pieces of bipartisan legislation or that on the surface level could be bipartisan, Um, specifically the America Competes Act or the US uh, Innovation and Competition Act. There's also been some small efforts um, on on big tech to ban self-preferencing. How do you see these other? You know, maybe they're not signature legislative achievements, but they could still have a meaningful impla- impact on the private sector. How do you see those playing out over the next few months?
0: Well, as a reminder, uh, all of those would have to generate at least ten Republican votes in the Senate because they can't be passed like BBB was uh, would be um, through budget reconciliation. So what we're talking about would be genuine bipartisanship, as we saw with the infrastructure bill, or at least genuine bipartisanship in the modern sense, which is to say a minimum number of Republicans would vote for it, which is 10 at the moment. Um, And I think on the competes USICA bill, that we'll get there. There is clearly actually relatively significant bipartisan support for those bills. They are viewed uh, correctly, I think, as mostly about uh, competitiveness with China. The the long pole in the tent of those bills is, of course, funding for uh, making producing uh, chips in the United States and um, not in a place like Taiwan that could be invaded by China or subject to a typhoon or a you know a tidal wave. Um, It's kind of scary to have all of our uh, chip manufacturing on one. Um, relatively exposed island far away. So I think there is real support for changing that. Uh, and I think the the two bills will be conference together and I think they will get to a deal and that will probably become law. There's a bunch of other things in both bills. Some of them are the same, some are different. It's not clear which of those will survive, but uh, definitely I think the centerpiece will. Uh, when, it, when it comes to other things like, in a trust, uh, sorry, go ahead
1: just going to say, just to kind of um, play back what you're saying, it sounds like the glue of these Pieces of legislation is the 52 billion dollars in um, semiconductor funding. So, kind of right. whatever other hap- whatever else happens on the margins, that at least will be included in the final package, which is not insignificant. Um, you know, particularly given that there are other country or other jurisdictions like the EU that are also pursuing similar initiatives, um, and so it'll be important to to monitor that.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. There are all kinds of domestic political considerations there. Um, building stuff here is very popular in American politics. Uh, and um, you can make a real case that part of the reason that we have basically no cars for sale at the moment is because we don't have enough semiconductors. And so um, in addition to the risks that I mentioned going forward uh, to our supply chain of semiconductors. I think building it here is a very good thing to do both for Republicans and Democrats. Uh, The questions around tech are very complicated politically because we now have a series of strange bedfellows where you have uh, folks on the left and the right, um, both interested in regulating tech in various ways. Uh, The left, because they believe tech is too big and that it's bad for consumers. The right, because uh, they're concerned that tech companies like Twitter and Facebook have deplatformed their uh, heroes like Donald Trump, and uh, they don't want them to have that kind of control of the kind of means of communication. I don't think that those will be resolvable. I don't think that uh, despite the fact that there does seem to be these strange bedfellow situations, I, I doubt that they're going to get it across the finish line doing regular regulating tech is very very complicated um there are many uh other industries that can be impacted when you try to go after you know the companies as large as the fangs i i just don't think they're going to get it done in a congress that is this dysfunctional that can barely name a post office i just don't think they're going to be able to resolve those kinds of differences
1: yeah i i think that that's Um, you know, our sense as well. And given the lack of action, um, you know, on Capitol Hill, I think that it's likely the Biden administration will lean a little bit more heavily on the FTC, the CFPB, the SEC to pursue their, um, their regulatory agenda writ large, but in particular, their tech regulatory agenda. I mean, all three um, enforcement bodies have put out a a swath of, um, you know, requests for information and guidance and enforcement action, you know, specifically on um, the tech area. And you had mentioned that, you know, Biden isn't able to get his nominees through for at the Fed. Um, You know, the FTC also doesn't have a Democratic majority, neither does the FCC. And so given that, do you think that the Biden administration will be able to pursue its tech regulatory agenda through additional rulemakings or enforcement, or do you think that the GOP opposition to some of these nominees is um, more more sticky?
0: It's really hard to know because the most precious commodity in Washington right now is Senate floor, Senate time. And um, obviously there is an enormously high profile Supreme Court uh, nomination that's about to happen. Uh, that will suck up a lot of time. And um, the Republicans are using all kinds of dilatory tactics to delay in the consideration of an enormous swath of Biden appointees, some of them uh, in the agencies. I mean, we don't have ambassadors to huge countries, including, I think, the UK. Um, and it's insane how, how much, uh, how many roadblocks that they've erected around these um, nominations, And I think to your point, unless they can get the FTC and the FCC done, um, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to pursue any kind of aggressive uh, agenda without quorums or majorities on those two bodies.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really good point that doesn't get a lot of attention. And, and certainly, um, you know, maybe not in, in foreign papers, just the uh, the legislative tactics that can be used to, to, to delay nominees and just the hours and hours it can take um, for a single vote um, to have it fail and have to bring it back. And, uh, you know, that really can add up. And you mentioned the, the Supreme Court nominee, there's also government, um, you know, spending, I think that the, <laughs> the funding, uh Runs out in about two days from now. Yeah, uh, yeah so um, they've certainly got a, a packed agenda, and then you know navigating all of that ahead of you know midterms and um, you know down a senator, um, at least in the in the Democratic Party, also complicates complicates that as well. Um, you know, shifting to the midterms, you know, it doesn't seem that. The Democrats have a, a very rosy outlook, as I mentioned um, at the beginning. But you mentioned it's, you know, not an inevitable outcome that Democrats lose the House and Senate. So, one, what do you think they can do from now until um, November to, you know, secure their base? And then, two, if you If they aren't able to get through a successor build back better, do you think that the American Rescue Plan and the bipartisan infrastructure package are strong enough to carry Democrats through to the election?
0: Uh, I think that there's often too much, I'm taking your second question first, there's often too much emphasis on running on accomplishments. I don't think voters really think that way. They don't take an inventory well, let's see here they've passed these three bills and these two are stuck in committee and and therefore on the whole i'm satisfied that's just not how voters think it is often how pundits discuss things um, will they have enough to run on but i just don't think that's it i mean you know newt gingrich led a, a republican revolution in 1994 winning back the house for the first time in more than 30 years for republicans And he had what they called the contract with America, but there were insanely small things on that list, like getting rid of elevator operators in the house and and ice delivery. I mean, these are not like agenda items that people are running on. So what you run on is a sense that things are good uh, or bad, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. And at the moment, uh, that'd be really hard because Americans are not feeling that things are good. The, that could change if COVID is actually ebbing in the ways we all pray that it is, and, and we, we are returned to normal um, by let's say June, um, that will have a huge impact on the mood of the electorate. The, the biggest thing we discussed already is inflation. Biden has limited options there, but if that does, feel like it's beginning to ease, then I think Democrats have a fighting chance because they they will go out and talk about the infrastructure bill and how that's going to change people's lives in their district, which it will. Um, They will point out that they were the ones that uh, ushered in this enormous economic boom that followed the, uh, the pandemic. And so I think they'll have a case to make. And then I think there are some structural reasons to believe that all hope is not lost for Democrats. Uh, one is that redistricting, which everyone thought would go very poorly for Democrats, didn't. Um, in the end, uh, the, all the experts believe Democrats would lose 10 seats purely to redistricting. And now uh, experts like the folks at the Cook Report believe that it's basically going to be a wash, that we will have about the same number of DNR districts uh, this time as we did after the last census. Um, So that's enormous. Uh, And it's part because Democrats did some massive gerrymandering in Democratic states like New York and Illinois to make up the difference for where Republicans were doing the same to them. Uh, That's number one. Number two is that Democrats do not hold a lot of impossible districts anymore. Um, In the past, when there were big wave elections against Democrats, most of the people, many of the people who lost were in districts that they held despite the fact that they had gone for Republicans in presidential elections and Senate races. But those districts are largely gone. Uh, we, in 2020, we lost Colin Peterson, who was a very senior member of the House. He uh, he had basically the last House Democratic district that was very Trumpian. Um, almost, I think Trump won only seven other districts, and all of them quite narrowly, uh, the Democrats hold. And so we basically are in. Land that is defensible, in unlike in past cycles, so I do think that there's reason to believe that Democrats could hang
1: on. And just to to push back or, or to test that, I mean, we've seen I think around 30 Democrats have announced their retirement. Yep. Um, that to me is starting to feel very similar to 2018, when I think uh, you know little over 30 uh, Republicans retired. Um, often they were the more moderate Republicans. Um, who were maybe frustrated with the, the direction of the, the party was, was headed under Trump. You know, how do you think those retirements play in? Does that say something deeper about the, the Democratic Party, or is that just part of a normal churn in a midterm year?
0: Well, I think uh, that it's slightly different. I think you're right that in 2018, those Republicans did not want to be in a party with Trump. I do not think that is what the people retiring from Congress today are saying, and and I, they're either explicitly or otherwise. I think what they're saying is they don't want to be in a in the House anymore, uh, in a House that is likely to be controlled, despite what I have just said, um, by Kevin McCarthy and uh, and run by a Republican conference where two thirds of the members voted against certifying the last election. Uh, Four hours after a violent insurrection attack on the Capitol, they've had it, and um, and it's hard to blame them. Uh, politics is completely different now. Uh, At the the level of enmity between Republicans and Democrats is in, it's off the charts. They they despise each other, and they don't want to be in the House if it's run by the people who they truly dislike. Um, And that's it's really never been like that before. There was enormous uh, partisan tension in the House always. um, And it got pretty bad in the 1990s um, when, you know, Gingrich was battling with Clinton and there was an impeachment. But it's never been anything like this. And I mean, now it's so personal. It's uh, Democrats believe that they are in physical danger from their colleagues on the other side of the aisle, uh, both because of the pandemic and because they're gun carrying and because they have, invited these lunatics to attack the capital, so that's why they're leaving not because they don't like joe biden
1: yeah i mean i think that the this um the sentiment and the, the feeling um, from the people that we've been speaking with on, on Capitol Hill is just one of, of frustration. Um, you know, members used to be friends, staffers right. used to be friends across the aisle and kind of those interpersonal bonds that once existed have just eroded, um, you know, so much over the past few years. And that makes uh, it very hard to tackle some of the, you know, uh, common nuts and bolts of, of governing in areas where there are, our traditional, um, you know, bipartisan, uh, you know, alignment, and to and to push that forward. So then, you know, taking a step forward again and, and looking past. 2022. Um, if we can envision a world where, unfor- or you know, uh, Democrats do do not win or um, do not maintain control of the House and Senate, and President Biden is facing a, a Republican Congress, you know, how does that change his his governance style? Um, and then, what do you think is the the Republican agenda? You know, you had mentioned Gingrich's. Um, you know, compact with America. And there have been um, reports that the, the House GOP is is looking at initi- putting out, you know, a similar um, style platform built around seven task forces. I think they're, you know, jobs, healthcare, big tech, national security, countering Chinese influence, promoting energy independence and securing individual freedoms on the surface. Some of those might have opportunities for, for bipartisan, um, bipartisanship, but you know, what do you think is, a, is the realistic outlook?
0: I think the outlook is that there will be total gridlock and we will be lucky if they keep the government open and they uh, pass extensions of the debt ceiling. Um, if you think about where the Republicans have gone on policy, uh, in 2020, they did not have a party platform because Trump didn't want one. Um, they they have become um, a, a, a hero-worshipping cult of personality and not a political party. Um, and so I don't have the faintest idea where Kevin McCarthy is on trade. I mean, who knows? In the old days, he was pro-trade, as all Republicans were, um, and, and many Democrats, but not all. And the The real debate about trade happened kind of inside the Democratic Party. Now he's part of this um, right-wing populist, um, you know, party that that wants to kind of close off the borders to immigrants and to trade. So where is he on that? Where is he on national defense? Tucker Carlson was a major voice for the Trumpian right. Believes that we should not be helping Ukraine in any way. Does Kevin McCarthy believe that or not? It's not clear. I think it is a little clearer in the Senate. McConnell is much more of a traditional Republican in, in those ways. And I think you will see if, if they become the majority, I think to see things coming out of the Senate, they're likely to be a little bit closer to what we're all accustomed to in Republican politics. But not the House is the uh, just going to be a Trumpian nightmare. And I think what you will see them doing mostly is um, investigating and impeaching the president and his team. Um, that's what's going to occupy most of their time. What they will impeach him for, I don't have the faintest idea. They don't either, but they'll come up with something and that's what they'll do.
1: I mean, do you think we're headed, and this is maybe a you know more macro or, or higher, higher level um, question, but do you think we're headed towards, you know, these kind of wild swings in American politics that are, you know, very much dependent on cultural wars where, you know, we, the Trump was impeached. You're saying Biden is impeached. Is impeachment going to become a part of our, you know, daily American political life?
0: I'm afraid it will. Um, that's a terrible outcome for America and the world. But I think that that's where we are. I think that that we have a major political party that has been hijacked um, by somebody that does not believe in American democracy uh, and does not play by any of the rules of American democracy. And that is going to lead to some extraordinarily uh, bitter and difficult uh, battles. And I think you are put your finger on it. We're going to swing back and forth because they're going to take power, uh, and then they're going to disgust voters in the middle. And then we're going to get power back. And it's going to to gyrate like this until, and I think this will happen eventually, um, Republicans return to a more stable democratic uh, order. Now, that's my hope that it happens eventually. The other possibility is that they steal the 2024 election, which is a very live possibility, that Trump becomes president, and then American democracy essentially dies, at least for a while. Um, That is a live possibility that people like me, and I'm a moderate, now believe is really a serious threat, Uh, something I could never have even fathomed before 2016.
1: It's pretty shocking to hear you and, and other, um, you know, folks like you with your experience in in government say that there is a non-zero chance that American democracy falters or fails. So, and I'm sure that's, you know, very jarring for investors, for companies that are operating in the U S to hear, um, you know, how do you think that this should impact, you know, business decisions, if at all? Should they be, you know, pulling out of the the US? Um, You know, we were once the most, uh, you know, stable democracy, um, you know, safe place for investment. Do you think that that changes? Um, And over kind of what timeline do you see these shifts happening?
0: You know, I, I can't believe I find myself saying this, but I think there's a possibility that, 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 that businesses may have to start thinking that way. Um, if the Republicans win the House, for instance, I think there's a non-zero chance that they will allow America to default on our debt. That, that, is, a, that is a possibility. Um, I, I think it's probably less than 50% likelihood because I just have to believe that they're not completely insane, but, but it is possible that we will default on our debt and God knows what will happen after that. Um, And I think if Donald Trump or a very close facsimile of Trump becomes president uh, in 2024, either by winning the election uh, outright or by stealing the election, and they are plotting to do so, we've done a lot of work on that. um, Then I think what you will see is the kind of authoritarian government um, that we see in Poland and Hungary, uh, not what you see in China, we're not going to have concentration camps, but we are, we are going to move towards um, a, a much more authoritarian style of government, where um, if you think that the last Trump uh, team was bad, <laughs> you've seen nothing yet. And I think that that should really be something that investors consider. Uh, about where the United States could be heading. And then uh, I I must say that that all of this would be catastrophic for those companies and for the global economy. And therefore, uh, and this is a partisan thing to offer, but I I do believe that companies should be investing heavily in people who believe in democracy, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, um, not only in um, political races, but also in NGOs and other organizations that are fighting to protect democracy, and there's many of them, but this is an, a, a huge and and real risk to the bottom line in ways that um, it was only theoretical before.
1: I mean, I, I think this is a really important point, one that is probably not getting enough attention and one that will likely get more attention, hopefully, um, as we get closer and closer to the election. Um, I, I just wanted to, to wrap up, um, you know, looking at you know, voting restrictions and kind of some of the stuff that's happening at the state level. I know this, you had mentioned this is an area that you've focused on, um, you know, I thought you, uh, you know, kind of forecasted that this would happen, I think, on on a previous call. And just to to push back maybe a little bit on the the Republican steel. you know, we did see efforts obviously from the um, the Trump camp uh, to do that in 2020, but you had you know your average Republican, um, you know, state government official. Uh, you know, particularly in, in Georgia, the the man's name is eluding is me Ralph at the moment. Murder. Yes, Ralph yes, exactly. Right. You know, I mean, he did stand his ground. Yes. Um, do you think that those, you know, checks and balances at a, at a lower level have um, degraded? And do you think that some of the voting restriction legislation that has been proposed or passed in several states um, pushes us more meaningfully towards that kind of darker uh, American future that you just outlined.
0: Yes, unfortunately I do. And I would, I would hope that people would go to our website, thirdway.org. It's the, it's the feature piece on there. It's called the plot to steal the presidency. And, and that is not an overstatement. Um, what we saw in 2020, including the famous phone call to Brad Raffensberger that led to Trump's second impeachment, where he asked him to find him 11,000 votes. Um, that was a kind of, um, scattered, hectic clown car full of wacko lawyers like Giuliani and Linwood that um, was extraordinarily dangerous because the president was driving it um, and came closer to an actual coup than any of us knew until recently. Um, so it was very, very bad. But what, what they are planning for 2024 is vastly worse, uh, It indescribably worse in many ways. And, and just to give you a few. Brad Raffensperger is going to lose the Republican primary to a guy named Jody Heiss, who is a far-right Trumpian House member. He's running for Secretary of State. He's going to win. He's up by more than 20 points. And Jody Heiss believes in the big lie. And if he had been on the other end of that phone call from Trump, he would have tried to find 11,000 votes and to upend the election. And... That's happening in all of the 10 presidential swing states. In Arizona, you have a big lie Republican running for both governor and secretary of state. It's happening in Michigan, where a big liar is running for secretary of state and attorney general and governor. It's happening in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Um, So those are the statewide offices. And then even worse, people like Steve Bannon and Charlie Kirk, two MAGA leaders, are driving their their listeners, and they've got uh, tens of millions of them on their podcasts and, and Facebook, to sign up as precinct workers, which is to say the people that actually administer the elections. When you go to vote, they're the people who are there to check you in and to count the votes at the end. And they are signing up people who believe the election was stolen in 2020 because of some lunatic idea about uh, you know, satellites and bamboo and from China. And, um, and, and they're going to be the ones administering elections. And there are many other things besides. Um, but the bottom line is there have been um, dozens of bills that have passed in state legislatures already, many more to come that are not only suppressing the vote of people they don't want to vote. That's a time-honored, horrible American tradition of trying to keep people, mostly black people from voting. Right. But these are about stealing the vote, about allowing the state legislature to actually change the results of the election once people have voted. And that is um, just taking a hacksaw to the centerpiece of our democracy. And if they succeed, and they might, we're in real trouble. So um, that's in part why I think um, it's incumbent upon everyone, including multinational companies, to be Aware of and involved in protecting American democracy because it is going to have a huge impact on the global economy.
1: Yeah, and in particular to, to focus on these these state level actions. Um, I mean, you had mentioned Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan. These are essential it, states um, in elections and ultimately determine you know the future of American <laughs> governance. Um, so these are you know it could not be ha- it could not be happening in um, you know more important states. So. Certainly something to, to bear in mind. Um, well, I can't say I am leaving this call sure, uh, yes. fe- feeling better, but I think that you, you know, we've raised a number of important issues, um, you know, for for companies, for, uh, you know, global citizens to to think and, and consider about. And so I just want to say thank you for uh, joining us. And we look forward to continuing the the conversation.
0: Likewise. Thanks for having me.
1: For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.